So I'm going to start off this podcast with a great quote that I found from Trevor Noah. And it says, it's weird because America is the kind of place where someone can get more offended at you calling them racist than the fact that they are racist. How dare you call me a racist? How dare you be a racist? Uh, Today we're going to dive into white fragility one more time. I had the opportunity to do a training at the UUC Congregation Church about this, and so I felt like I had a little bit more to offer about that. So I am going to get into white fragility, talk about white fragility a little bit more. It's very, very hot right now. Uh, So understanding it, getting a sense of how it works is going to be the main thrust of the podcast. First, I'm going to tell you about why you should care. Uh, why understanding this is important. I'm also going to kind of come at this at a little bit different angle. Uh, I'm going to talk about understanding white supremacy in a different way. So you have the words to discuss that. I probably should do a white supremacy podcast, but have not yet got around to that yet. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about a little bit about reframing the idea of racism, like to not worry about racists or racist acts but more about systemic racism so those are going to be the three main things i talk about is why should you care uh, understanding white supremacy uh, reframing racism and then how do these ideas manifest i'll talk about how it works with me i'll talk about uh, some examples of how i see it working in the world and we'll just come away with a little bit better understanding with things first talk a little bit about why we should care first off you should, make, you should really care because this affects you as well as your relationships. The fact that you, uh, if you're a white person and you engage in white fragility, uh, it's sometimes things that your friends who are people of color need to navigate with you. They need to find a way to explain the idea to you. They need to have, find a way to help you work through some of this stuff. Uh, and it sucks because they don't get paid for doing it and they don't get anything extra, except for maybe extra flack from you, uh, depending on how you manage your own fragility. It's also a barrier to being an inclusive person. Uh, It also is a cue uh, for you to understand that you're experiencing cognitive dissonance. And when this cognitive dissonance happens, you will eventually now know how to work that trigger into a way of eventually using your privilege on behalf of other people. And also, you need to care because the experience of others' fragility manifests with your own oppressed identity. So understanding how fragility works in a different way and that it comes back to you in an oppressed identity is something that you need to understand too. So next, we'll work on some language so we can talk about some things together. First off, I'm gonna tell you about the old way white supremacy was understood. This is the old notion. It is the belief that white people are superior to those of all other races, especially the black race, and therefore should dominate society. That is the old idea of white supremacy. White people are superior to all other races. Here is the new understanding of white supremacy. This term is also typically used as a political ideology that perpetuates and maintains the social, political, historical, institutional domination by white people as evidenced by historical and contemporary socio-political structures such as the Atlantic slave trade, Jim Crow laws, and apartheid. 
Different forms of white supremacy put forth different conceptions of who was considered white, and different groups of white supremacists identify various racial and cultural groups as their primary public enemy. In academic usage, primarily in usage on which draws on the idea of critical race theory, that's another thing I should do a podcast on, deep stuff critical race theory, the term white supremacy can also refer to a political or socioeconomic system where white people enjoy a structural advantage, privilege, over ethnic groups uh, on both a collective as well as individual level. So this is usually what people are not calling you specifically when you might be experiencing white fragility, and that is a white supremacist. Again, if you listen to this, po- this podcast, this is probably not you, unless you just listen to me to get pissed off, which if that's the case, you totally need to leave voicemails because I think that would be hilarious. Uh, a white supremacist, a person that believes the white race is inherently superior to the other races and that white people should have control over other people of other races. This is really maybe like 3% of the population. And again, if you're listening to this podcast, unless you're just doing it to get pissed off, which I think is hilarious again, this is probably not you. So when we're talking about white supremacy, we're not saying you're a white supremacist. So relax, all right? So much of fragility is you just need to freaking relax and not take yourself so damn seriously. Now, moving on, I wanna talk a little bit about racism. So, traditional notions of racism. This is how racism used to be thought of and as. A belief that race is the primary determinant of a human trait or capacity, that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. I love how they're like, racism thinks that one race is better than other races, but it doesn't say like what race. Like, that is so white fragility, like, just deep into Merriam-Webster that they can't even be, like, white race. Like, they just go, a particular race. Like, it happens any other way. So, we're not talking about that. We are talking about systemic or institutional racism. The real concern is institutional racism, also known as systemic racism. And it's a form of racism expressed in the practice of social and political institutions. Institutional racism is also racism by individuals or informal social groups. They're governed by behavioral norms which support racist thinking and foment active racism. It is reflected in the disparities regarding wealth, income, criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, political power, and education, among several other factors. That's where we're going, is understanding how systemically racism is everywhere, and it makes things problematic specifically. And uh, lastly, this is again, probably what we're not calling you specifically, and that's a racist. So here's the definition of racist. It's showing a or feeling discrimination or prejudice against people of other races or believing that a particular race, again, interesting, right? Doesn't say white, just says particular race is superior to others. This is more act-based or person-focused and really usually never connects to the larger idea of systemic racism. So when we call people out on doing something that's racist, I think that's almost more problematic because we're now putting the idea that racism is just like a couple acts done by a couple of bad people rather than looking at the systemics and how everything interconnects to create systemic inequities in the system for everybody that is not white people specifically. So 
I think it's a problem when we do the gotcha thing with people on racism because one, we never teach them how to do any better. We just punish them and they didn't really know better. And then the other thing too is it, it grounds this idea that like it's only an act. It's not something that we're struggling against or fighting with all the time. So the whole I'm not a racist thing is really, really problematic in that you kind of are, and that's okay, because you learn this thing, and we need to unlearn this together. So understanding this and how it works, I think, is something that's really, really important. So now, let's get back into white fragility. Let's, When we talk about white fragility, let's start to understand how fragility can manifest outside of just whiteness. So we have a lot of different privileged identities. So here's some privileged identities. Male, white, able, heterosexual, cisgendered, cisgender, sorry, rich, temporarily abled, Christian, adult, English speaker, U.S. citizen, educated, veteran, or ideal body weight. Again, if you have these things, you got privilege and you get unearned power that is conferred to you systematically for being these things because these are the things that society wants you to be. A mark of privilege is being overvalued in a society because of your specific identity. So for example, I have heterosexual privilege and because I have heterosexual privilege, the world is built for me uh, when it comes to dating. There's tons and tons of apps of websites that I can use to try to find love. Bumble, eHarmony, Christian Mingle, Farmers Only, Craigslist, The Bar, Work, grocery stores, like almost anywhere, it's kind of socially acceptable for me to ask somebody out on a date. But if I start looking at targeted identities, now we look at anybody that's not considered male or female specifically. Uh, we look at people of color. We look at folks that are that have ability issues or are considered queer or non-binary with their gender or are on a spectrum of uh, sexual orientation attraction, right? Where do they go to find love if they have all those intersections? And I know people usually just tell me grinder, but grinder is not that specific. Like, I don't know that it has a pan setting uh, for genderqueer, non-binary folks to find love specifically, especially like if you're maybe asexual, right? What's the app for love for that? There isn't one because you don't fit the norm of what society wanted you to be. And it becomes very, very, very problematic. So now let's look at white fragility a little bit more closely. Now, white fragility is that term that, again, I talked about in the last podcast. It was coined by Beverly D'Angelo, and it's noting that white privilege can be thought of as an unstable racial equilibrium. When this equilibrium is challenged, the resulting racial stress becomes intolerable and can trigger a range of defensive responses. D'Angelo defines these behaviors as white fragility. So an example of this would be uh, when Robin D'Angelo says that she was at a training before. Uh, she's at a training at somebody's work and a white guy pounds the desk and goes, a white man can't get a job anymore. Like he's like saying that things are so hard for white people that it can't get work while he's at work. You see how weird that is? But again, it's just this, it's this reverse bullying. It's this bullying of victimhood that gets the conversation off of uh, what's uncomfortable for people to talk about. 
White fragility also can be thought of as a state in which even a minimal amount amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, as well as behaviors like argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate the white racial equilibrium. So people using and doing these things stops the conversation and it makes it so equity can't exist because now this person's feelings are hurt, right? So we can't talk about this thing anymore because blah, blah, blah's feelings are hurt and we have to attend to blah, blah, blah's feelings rather than talk about the issue that was causing systemic inequality for folks of marginalized identities. So here's a helpful way of thinking of it. Again, it's the bullying of victimhood. So you make yourself a victim and you bully the conversation away from those with privilege so they don't have to talk about stuff that frankly just makes them uncomfortable. That's what they do. They use this bullying of victimhood that is known as white fragility. That's what I'm gonna call this podcast. White fragility, the bullying of victimhood. That's perfect. I love that I came up with that idea. Uh, An example of what uh, the bullying of victimhood looks like is, oh, just watch Justice Kavanaugh talk after he had to answer some questions about some things that happened to him in this past. That is the bullying of victimhood if I have ever seen it. So right now I'm gonna play this great video uh, that is on YouTube and it's by The Rise, R-I-S-E District, uh, Seeing White Fragility. So if you get a chance, please check this out on YouTube because I want them to get the listens so they can kind of get the credit for this. But I thought this was something that was interesting and you might enjoy as well. So I'm gonna go ahead and play that for you right now. How do you feel when you see a headline like this? Or this? If you're white, you might feel uncomfortable guilty, or even angry. In this video, we're going to talk about why that happens and how to overcome it. Most white Americans don't realize our culture protects us from having to truly confront racial inequality, which gives us a major blind spot when it comes to understanding what the reality of systemic racism is for people of color, or how complicit we may be in their oppression. We think of racism as something bad people engage in, instead of something we're conditioned into from childhood. As a result, when indirect, unconscious, or less obvious forms of racism and discrimination are exposed for what they are, it challenges our beliefs about ourselves and our world, provoking our own blind spots when it comes to race. And more often than not, well, let's just say we don't handle it well. The phrase was invented by Robin DiAngelo, a multicultural education expert to talk about what happens consciously and unconsciously when white Americans are confronted with challenges to white dominance. According to D'Angelo, even a minimal amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves, including the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. These behaviors wind up preserving the status quo, protecting white comfort and therefore reinstating white dominance. White fragility is triggered by interruptions in which white codes of discourse are broken to force a white person to confront racism, and they show up in a number of different ways. 
like when anyone, white or otherwise, suggests that a white person's viewpoint is racist. When people of color talk candidly about their experiences of racism. When people of color choose not to share stories or answer questions about their racial experience. And especially whenever people of color choose not to protect the racial feelings of white people. Some other instances of racial stress include when white people are denied access to black safe spaces or black bodies. When white people are told their actions have racist impacts. When racial inclusivity gets prioritized over group membership. When double standards are exposed. When white meritocracy is challenged by exposing white privilege. Whenever white centrality is challenged by narratives in which people of color are front and center without being presented stereotypically. And finally, when a person of color holds a position of leadership. Whatever the cause, knee-jerk overreactions protect white dominance by silencing non-white voices and segregating whites from people of color. By distancing ourselves from racially stressful situations and refusing to consider other perspectives, white people take advantage of the very race privilege we claim not to have. As long as white people require conversations about race to be comfortable for us, racial equality will be a lot harder to achieve. So what do we do when our rules stand in the way of dealing constructively with racism? The answer is, we break the rules. The best way to defeat white fragility is to grow a thicker skin. Build your racial stamina by following some do's and don'ts. Don't assume you are objective or an authority on the experiences of people of color. In a racialized society, whites inevitably have a blind spot. Resist the urge to get defensive when people of color speak honestly about their experiences. Catch yourself whenever you find yourself thinking that a black person's perspective is divisive or abusive. That's often a sign that you lack understanding. Don't recenter a conversation or narrative involving race around you or your feelings. Instead, cede the floor to your neighbors of color to amplify and learn from their perspectives. Explore the complexity of individuals you disagree with or don't understand. Your realities are totally different, and you will never breach that divide by running away from or silencing uncomfortable exchanges. Before getting angry, think about the root cause or need behind someone's emotional outburst or complaint. What you're interpreting as impoliteness or vitriol may be the best available means for them to express their experience of racism. Remember, in this society, white people are safer, included, and seen by default. The same is not true for people of color, which is why forcing them to shoulder the burden of fighting for equality, requiring them to be friendly and helpful in the face of white ignorance, and expecting them to give white people the benefit of the doubt, is not only wrong but also makes well-meaning white people complicit in their oppression. Choosing not to be sensitive in a world that already shelters you will improve your racial resiliency, lead to better relationships with your black and brown friends and neighbors, and most importantly, create necessary space for the equality and justice that people of color deserve. 
So I found that particularly good and very effective. I was super happy to get to share that because I thought that was something that was really great information. So I'm sorry if that was a little bit quieter, but uh, I thought that was really good and I wanted to share it. So have you seen or noticed any examples of that stuff? Uh, how did you kind of feel as you were looking at that idea of white fragility? Really understanding that stuff is really very, very important. So what we have to do is we got to talk about it. And so we need to get used to spending time and understanding the experience of oppressed people. And when they call us out on stuff that we may do or may not understand or we're insensitive to, we just gotta slow down a second and realize that these people are having an actual experience. These folks are friends. They're not trying to tell us this just because it's gonna help them in some major way. It's gonna, it's gonna help us learn a little bit more about their situation and what they're experiencing so we can connect to that a little bit better. So listen, when you feel this sense of privileged defensiveness, because it happens and it's part of the deal. And you gotta really get comfortable with your really uncomfortable privilege. For me, passing privilege is the thing that is uncomfortable for me. Here's how someone kind of talks about some of these things. Uh, for passing privilege, again, my area of uncomfortability. Passing privilege is conditional or partial or full white privilege provided to certain members, usually oppressed of folks from racial and ethnic groups because of their looks and that those looks can be aligned with people in power, particularly the people in power, white people specifically. The condition of maintaining the privilege is simple, whether or not white people feel as though they should provide this privilege to you. Now, white privilege cannot be given to oneself, and whether one has passing privilege is not one's own decision. This essentially means that, while in some cases, revealing one's heritage may result in the elimination of privilege, to others it may not. There is one thing that is absolutely certain of white passing privilege. To the people in power, you are one of them. In that situation where there are concerns, uh, where non-passing people or people of color uh, function is a white body. Now, if I'm being honest, sometimes I think that sucks because I didn't pay, ask for my face or my skin tones. It's a nice sentiment, but uh, non-passing people of color didn't ask for theirs either. And every other group of people of color can contain white passing people. Some groups, thanks to colonization, contain many, many more proportionally than others. We all understand that people of color can align themselves with white supremacist values and therefore it follows that white passing people of color can do the same but there is a stark difference white passing people of color have a measure of power and when that measure of power meets white supremacist val values it is functionally indistinguishable from a regular white person taking the same action so for me uh here's how white privilege uh, white passing privilege works for me I don't own my mixedness. Uh, I am mixed. I'm indigenous, but I am mixed. Uh, but I like don't like owning my mixedness because back in the day, I didn't get to own my mixedness. You didn't get to be mixed when I was a kid. You had to be the thing that they didn't like. You know, I was brown, so I was, that's all I got to be was brown. So now that I'm lighter and I'm perceived as whiter, uh, or that I'm misperceived as white. I get a lot of passing privilege and it makes me really uncomfortable and I need to really take some time and get comfortable for some of that stuff because that's where I can understand the 
non-passing privilege or non-passing oppression that other people experience and i can also lower my own defensiveness so i can hear and understand more of what other folks are going through so i can be a better ally to them so now that we understand what white fragility looks like or fragility in general let's practice some de-escalation de-escalation let's practice that if you feel defensive slow down a second and just pause don't say anything take a second and just for a moment consider what would it mean if this is true now when you're feeling that feeling don't be defensive take that feeling and pivot to wonder as to what it must feel like to have this experience if you were somebody else also it's really really important to hold what you think you know very loosely I've heard that you should all hold all your beliefs somewhat like sand. If you grip too tightly, it slips through your fingers. If you grip too loosely, it doesn't stay in your hand. But be willing to learn about new things and understand new and different ideas from different people. Also, take a second to find the truth in this person's reality. What are they saying that is part of their experience? And how can I understand that a little bit better? So I'm going to read off some white fragility triggers uh, so you can test for yourself how you feel about those things. These are level one white fragility triggers that some white people can feel defensive about. Saying white people have a lot of work to do. Uh, pointing out whiteness like this is my white friend Gary. This is my white friend Sally. Like pointing out whiteness can make people feel like well why would you say that? Also just saying affirmative action is a good idea can be a white fragility triggers. Or asking why do you only have the one black friend? When someone says, I can't be racist, I have a black friend, you go, well, how is it you only have the one black friend? White fragility triggers level two. Uh, saying black lives matter and just having them sit with that truth. Uh, saying we need more people of color in our offices, at our work, as community vendors, etc. Saying that it is impossible to actually reverse racism. Or saying this meeting is for blank oppressed group members only and not white people. White fragility triggers number two. This is the next level, all right? White fragility triggers level three. Saying that was racist. Oof, yeah, people don't like that one. Interrupting Bernie Sanders to say economics do not equate to black lives mattering. Pointing out that Kirsten Cinema in Arizona is not probably pro progressive enough. Uh, bringing up reparations and then when people say they're impractical also telling people there were reparations for white people right after the civil war and here's the the level the ultimate level of triggering right but this is a statement so again take a second sit with it because it might make you uncomfortable uh, this statement was by mansa kiata he says if i die I want to be reincarnated as a white woman so I can reap the benefits of both affirmative action and white supremacy. I can complain about wage gaps and still benefit financially because I'd be married to a man making more money than me. I know that all I need to do is cry to get a response because my tears are weapons that can get black men lynched. I can have conservative views but still take advantage of the progress of the women's rights movement. I know that no matter where I go, I'll never be prejudged pre in a manner that warrants notifying the police and my chances of being killed by a white cop are slim 
to fucking none. Again, right? That quote really meant to trigger some fragility. So kind of takeaway thoughts is fragility keeps you weak. We must choose to breathe through our moments of fragility and accept the reality of our privileged situations. Uh, it is a form of bullying via victimhood. Uh, you become a victim, you bully people of uh, background with your victimhood, and they don't have space or the air to have a conversation because you made it about your feelings and your situation. Uh, even if you have done some amazing anti-racist work in the past, or you do service, you are still subject to white fragility or privileged fragility. And lastly, we need to be strong enough to hear the, the truth and accept the criticism and find a space of reconciliation. So yeah, that was my thoughts on the podcast specifically. Uh, now I just wanted to take some time and check up with you. So as far as me and my self-care have been going, uh, things have been good the past week or so. I want to say I've gotten in five or four days of lifting, but I've also gotten in more than enough cardio. So at least four other sessions of cardio in, uh, either with my lifting and my working out. So my lifting and my cardio are really strong. I'm feeling really good about that. I lifted... No, I didn't lift. This is uh, meditation. I did meditation two times last week. So again, I'm just one thing short of where I need to be for my meditation for the week. Need to get back on track with meditation and spend my time there. I've been doing some yoga, um, just loosening up uh, and trying to get my body a little bit more limber and loose. And that's been good. I've been really happy about that recently. And I've been on point with all my supplements, taking all my supplements, uh, trying to eat well. I've ate pretty well over the Thanksgiving uh, break, but I need to tighten up my sweets. That's always one of the areas of issues with me. And as far as me working with Tank, I'm starting to get into a little bit more than that, but I also need to take him around and kind of make sure that he's comfortable around dogs a little bit more. So understanding that is really, really important. As far as me and my activism, uh, that's been pretty good. On Black Friday, I went out and did some service at Feed My Starving Children, and that was a good experience, and I was happy to be there and be part of that. I also got to go to a cultural day of thanks at Phoenix College Preparatory Academy, where they were celebrating... Um, you know, just the, their students and their backgrounds. So they got to do some cultural dances. They were singing some songs and stuff. A really, really good experience. I got to take my college president to a sweat lodge. So I've done two sweats since I've talked to you last. Really busy on the sweat front. Uh, and that's been good because it's really reset me and helped me out quite a bit. I did some debriefing at Phoenix College's Tunnel of Oppression, uh, and so I tried. I took two different groups through and tried to take a moment to help them make some sense of that experience and what all they were going through. And so that was a really good experience uh, and something that I really appreciated. I got to take my college president to uh, the Frybread House and give him uh, Native American food for the first time ever, and I was proud about that. I closed out my flag football season. Uh, this isn't service, but I was really happy about it, so I'm going to share it with you. And I won the championship, so that was something I was really happy and proud of and something that I was really glad to get to share. Uh, I did my white fragility workshop at the UUC training, and I think that gets us caught, caught back up uh, with my activism over the last month. I haven't had the ability to record recently because I was having some audio issues, but thank goodness for our producer, Sarah. She came over, she got it all figured out, and I was really, really happy to see that she got that stuff together for me slash us. 
So with that, if you got triggered by one of the things that you that I said, like if say you're one of the racist people that do listen or the white supremacists that do listen, call me and share how pissed you were with that white woman comment. I'd really be interested to hear that. Or call me and tell me about like, hey, I'm having a real experience with this and I'm trying to work through it and I'd like to get some advice on that because I can help with those things. If you have a question, a comment, a text, you can always get a hold of me at 860-576-9393. Again, just leave me a voicemail, send me a text, I'll read your text out, I love that stuff. But get a hold of me, 860-576-9393. Let's kind of have a conversation together. Uh, it's a space for you to ask me questions, hit me with distant scenarios, or ask how I might respond to a situation in real time, and I can help you be a better inclusive activist in the future too. Uh, depending how good your stuff is, I might give it a future full podcast podcast in the future too. Uh, also, if you're interested in booking me or bringing the power of inclusive activism to your organization, you can do so by emailing me at inclusiveactivism at cox.not. That's I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V-E-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-M at C-O-X dot N-E-T, uh, inclusiveactivism at cox.net. And you can always learn more about me and this organization at www.inclusiveactivism.com. Looking forward to getting a lot more podcasts in, in the very, very short-term future. And I hope you enjoyed this and you learned something and you might have the ability to make somebody else's future a little bit more inclusive in the very next week. And with that, I have one more thing for you and it is a recommendation. It is a quote uh, that you should check out by Craig Crichton. And this is, you are not your ego. You are not a victim. You are not your body. You are not your past. You are not alone. You are not lacking anything. You are this moment. You in this moment are connected. You are a divine being. You are awakening. You are complete. And you are love. And the last thing I'd recommend is if you haven't read Beverly D'Angelo's new book on white fragility, check it out. It was really good. It gave me some wonderful insights for this podcast, and it gave me the ability to share and talk about these things with you. And again, if you're still thinking about this stuff or you want to talk about it more, get a hold of me, 860-576-9393, and I hope you have a lovely week. Thank you for your time and attention, and I'll be talking to you again in the very near future.